please use all of the talks that are given as opportunities to practice listening. To listen, it's helpful, at least for the time being, if we let go of all of our views and opinions or we see them come up and let them go. Agreeing with what you hear, disagreeing with what you hear. Trying to stay with the whatever is being said itself, allowing it to be heard. Noticing when the mind drifts off or when you get caught up in your Dharma talk, I should be really listening to you. You'll have your chance someday, you know, if you want that. But right now, you're in a position of the listener. And it's practice, because our practice, especially for those of you who are new, is not limited to the sitting posture or the formal walking posture. It's not limited to any posture or situation. It's really a way of living, a way of living which encourages us and provides us with certain uh, methods and principles to help us learn this art of staying, staying awake. I practiced at one monastery in Japan which had a sign uh, quite dramatically visible as you walked in the front gate um, which in English would read Watch your step! The spirit of it wasn't uh, sort of tough guy you know, telling you watch your step but more caring. Watch your step. There's ice. You may slip and fall. It was more that. Watch your step. Walk mindfully. And of course, as with all these Dharma teachings, finally it has to do with the state of the heart. Heart or citta in the Pali language includes what we think what we think of as mind in Western psychology, but it's far beyond that. It, it goes be, beyond that. Some people call, speak of mind-heart, but for tonight, heart, consciousness. So that finally, watch your step, of course, means watch your mind, watch your heart. Take care of yourself. One meaning of the Anapanasati Sutra and, uh, is protecting the heart or governing the heart, looking after the heart. So the full awareness of breathing, which we'll be tasting some of this week has to do with how to take care of our own heart, our own consciousness, 
the most precious thing there is for us. That's what it is, whether we know it or not, that we're doing so many things for, including a lot of suffering. But certainly meditation has to do with that. Emptying the heart of all the toxins and pollutants that have been dumped into it by ourselves. A friend of mine, uh, some years ago, do you know how in the Tibetan tradition, uh, lamas will give you an orange cord, a protective cord? And so this friend uh, took the protective cord and it was from Trungpa Rinpoche, who many of you may know of. And my friend asked him, uh, well, this protective cord, what is it you're being protected from? What does it protect you from? And Trungpa Rinpoche said, from yourself, of course. I'd like to, this evening, uh, begin some reflections on, uh, on taking care of the heart, on looking after it, and also, especially since um, I'm going to try to cover a fair amount of ground in the time that we have, for those of you who are leaving tomorrow, I hope you can leave with at least a little bit of a sense of <coughs> what shamatha practice is, where we work with the breath, calm the mind, and also what vipassana is. I'd like to use my grandfather as an example. Uh, last weekend, it was a family reunion, and my mother was telling grandfather stories. He was quite a character, very funny man, sometimes intentionally funny, and a lot of the time funny, we were laughing at him, which he seemed to enjoy too. Uh, I'm trying to convey what it means to not protect the heart. Because sometimes it's very subtle and how we are not aware of how we damage ourselves. Dharma is an attempt to bring wisdom to the heart, to pronounce it, to declare wisdom to the heart until the heart gets it, to show the heart enough times what lawfulness is, what, what is wise, what is beneficial, what is destructive. To declare these truths, finally the truth, enough times with enough continuity and enough depth and intensity so that the heart has no choice but to live by it. It finally understands on its own behalf how to live. Because so many of the problems in the heart are the heart's making. It secretes thoughts all day long, right? You all know that by now for sure. 
just like uh, glands do, uh, secrete digestive juices, the brain is secreting endless thoughts about everything. And many of these thoughts seem to uh, be a burden. We, cr- we think thoughts which then leave us burdened. It's like a, a one-person show, a one-man and one-woman act. At any rate, to understand my grandfather, you have to understand how difficult it was for him uh, to be an immigrant in this country. He came very late in life. Uh, I don't know for sure, but really late. He, did, he spoke no English suddenly and had never been in a big city. He lived in uh, small villages in Russia. And then one day found himself in New York City amidst this incredibly complicated goings-on of the need to support five children. He never did learn English. And I grew up uh, across the street from him, and we shared a a house for quite a while. So um, my mother reminded me of certain stories, and one in particular uh, I thought might be helpful to launch us into what will probably go beyond this evening in terms of understanding how how to care for the heart. But you have to understand... uh, before we get to this particular situation, which I think has a lot of dharma in it, it give you a feeling of how alien someone can feel being in a new culture, how strange it can be that things which are so obvious to us can be so difficult and oppressive. For example, early on, one time he was sick with a cold and everyone worked, so they were all leaving the house early in the morning, except my Aunt Esther, who was a little girl. And so uh, everyone said, well, Esther will take care of you. And she did. She gave him two aspirins. And then everyone came back from work at 5 o'clock, and my grandfather was all upset, in tears, and just really staring. He said, Esther, try to kill me. Esther, try to kill me. And I said, Pop, what do you mean? He said, I told her I had a cold, and she gave me these two aspirins, and I put them one in each nostril, and then I couldn't breathe. Well, it's pretty sensible, isn't it? If you have a cold, you put these things in the nose and then you're okay, at least from where he was coming from. Okay. Another time, he happened to see an accident. He was a witness to an accident, so they took him to court. And he was one of the witnesses of the accident. And at that time, he was very bent over, I mean, really hunched. And so when it came his turn to describe what he saw, he was speaking from a very hunched hunched over posture. And so the judge said, uh, please sit up, please sit up straight. And uh, because the judge wanted to see his face as he spoke. And so it was translated to my grandfather uh, as, you know, he wants you to sit up. And my grandfather said back to the translator, if I could sit straight, I'd be the judge. <laughs> he wasn't even trying to be funny. I don't think. There are more, believe me. At any rate, what my mother reminded me of last weekend was that situations that I was present and I saw them and, and now hearing them again in hindsight, it opened, up, it opened me up to something that's more general for all of us because it's so, in a way, hilarious and extreme. Uh, 
he had never made a tie, you know, a, a, a tie that you put on, you know, a suit and shirt and all that. And then he was trying to be an American. Everyone decided it's time to be an American, so uh, they bought him a suit and a shirt and a tie. And there was one time I was present, and it was clear he was, in his mind, if I could recreate it, it was sort of like, I'm going to be an American today. So he tried to make the tie any number of times and could not do it. Everyone in the family tried to show him how to make the tie. And finally, he just took the tie and threw it on the floor, and he cursed Christopher Columbus. <laughs> not, not once, and with every ounce of strength that he had. And then he cursed Christopher Columbus again, wishing that cholera would come to Christopher Columbus. Why? Because, he, because of Christopher Columbus discovering America, the word came back to Russia and that he came over here to this country. And because of all of that, he had to try to put on a tie and then find that he can't do it and feel humiliated. So it's Christopher Columbus's fault. <laughs> In one sense, it's brilliant Buddhist philosophy, Huayen it's called, or Avatamsaka, where if you're interested in very, very abstract philosophical teaching, very profound, not just abstract. More than anything I know, it deals with the interrelatedness of everything. In one uh, very beautiful teaching, it says that the universe is so tightly interrelated that if you removed one little piece of dust from the universe, the entire universe would fall apart, would just collapse. That's how we're all related to each other. Well, modern science is starting to support that. And anyway, so... If one little piece of dust is part of the relationship, then definitely Christopher Columbus was part of why he, he was there and had to undergo that humiliation. Another time, he, his uh, work was selling bananas. And apparently he bought bananas which were a little bit too ripe so that the next day when it was time to sell them, no one wanted them. And my grandmother just got angry at him. You old fool. How could you have bought bananas that are so ripe? At which point he went into his, I hope Christopher Columbus gets the cholera. And a curse on Christopher Columbus. And I don't know if you know, Eastern Europeans spit on the ground when they curse. And then the curse comes. And we would all just roll over from laughter when we saw it. But what, uh, one way of understanding what my grandfather was doing was that he was humiliated. But dealt with it by blaming someone else with a lot of bravado and uh, an attempt to, in a sense, regain his dignity, that he, his control, that he was really still on top. Not too convincing, and the ground he was standing on was rather shaky. But that was his attempt to remedy how badly he was feeling. And so in the attempt to try to uh, help himself, he just hurt himself more by doing that. Getting all upset and hurling all of that at Christopher Columbus did not get his tie tied, nor the bananas to go backwards and become less ripe. Uh, nor for the humiliation really to go away. A seven-year-old 
17-year-old student who uh, came to the Cambridge Center a while back with a so-called learning disability, which we later found out he's quite an intelligent young man, young boy. What he would do is he would study, and it was very important to his parents that he do well in school. And if he came to something that he didn't understand, as soon as that happened, there would be a flood of anxiety, real pain, and very quickly he would skip over it. The pain wouldn't last very long. I'm recreating the story. It took quite a while, months, to put this all together, to discern it, dig it out. And so he would go through a typical, let's say, schoolwork assignment, and there'd be big gaps. He would understand some things really well, and then as soon as he didn't get it right away, within immediately, there would be this flood of anxiety which didn't last very long because he would cut it off by skipping over it or instead of taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, he would take refuge in ice cream, take refuge in reading a book, take refuge uh, just as we all do in anything. Again, harming himself in the process of doing that. So my grandfather blamed someone else. This young boy just avoided his pain, just it didn't happen. There was a momentary sting and then a, a taking refuge in something else, deflection away from that, whether you call it repression or denial or avoidance. Probably all of us by now, today, it's quite common on retreats, certainly for new people, but perhaps for all of us. And if you can't draw upon your experience here, certainly probably there's something in your life before you came here. Is there life after IMS? I think there is. Don't worry about it. For the new people. Sometimes uh, we're in pain because the practice is, and quotes, not going well. The mind is racing all over the place. We uh, get notions that everyone else is getting calm, and you hear us talking about you know, these very uh, soft, uh, sweet voices talking about how wonderful the practice is and uh, peace and joy and serenity. In the meantime, it's a nightmare for you. You're on fire. Your body is aching with pain. Uh, you Not only haven't you been able to follow the breath, you can't even find where your nostrils are. <laughs> and you keep waiting. You keep waiting for as Mullah Nasruddin did, who was eating this big pile of red-hot peppers, and, and he kept eating one and crying, eating one and crying. And then someone said, Mullah, why do you keep eating those red-hot peppers? And he said, I keep waiting for a sweet one. <laughs> and some of us seem to sit here as if we have tasted some sweet ones. We certainly talk as if we have. And so it's all too easy to then turn on yourself that is the feeling of humiliation, now is neither blamed on someone else nor avoided, but you turn on yourself. You're no good. You're what is known as a bad yogi. And then, you know, uh, everything that follows from that. And I, that's probably familiar to all of us. So in all of these cases, the mind hurts. The mind is on fire. 
heart is burning. And we have different solutions. The problem is that they don't work so well. Blaming someone else or trying to avoid it or finally turning that on yourself and harming yourself even more. You can just keep those examples in mind. Those mind states really are more important. The content isn't as important as the mind state. The Buddha said, I teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. So, when we do our practice, we use the language of shamatha, which sometimes is translated as calm abiding or serenity or training in calmness or peace. And vipassana, insight. These are offering us ways of working with the heart skillfully. Ways of taking good care of the heart, caring for ourselves, of watching our step so that we don't fall on the ice. Can I make that a little bit more concrete? Sure, I'll try. If you're thinking that. Let's start with shamatha. Sometimes you hear the term samadhi. They're, they can be very similar or identical depending on how you're using it. I'm using them as identical. What actually have we been doing since last evening? Out of all the many things that we could be interested in this rich world of ours and this rich mind that we have, rich mind and body, we've taken one breath and we've put it in the forefront, we've featured it. And what we're suggesting is, no matter what else turns up and demands your attention, turn to the breathing. Start with the breathing. Meet it, experience it. And there'll be many claims up for your attention. The mind is very busy, quite preoccupied. These secretions are constantly flowing out of the brain, thinking about this and that. No matter what they are, and even if your body hurts, and even if there's a lot of sound pouring in from outside or inside, stay with the breathing. See if you can learn to stick to the breathing When the mind slips off the meditation object, the breathing, as soon as you notice it, come back. What does that accomplish? Uh, For those of you who are new, I think you will have to have some faith that with practice, uh, things change. uh, The day comes where you do find your nostrils and you even get in touch with your breath. Not only that, Uh, you begin to see as an act of intelligence the virtue of bringing your attention to the breathing and not not getting caught in the productions of the mind. The mind is much more enticing, at least at first, than the breath. It's just, a lot, so much of it is, is me and mine, isn't it? What are those thoughts all about? I want, I don't want, I like, I don't like, I'm good, I'm no good. People love me, they don't love me, I'm famous, I'm not famous, I'm rich, I'm poor. 
All day long, this story is going on. The mind keeps creating it and we keep jumping into it, playing our part out. Um, is it nice? Is it a nice way to live? Is it, does it lead to peace? If it did, none of us would be here, would we? So apparently it doesn't. A certain amount of wisdom is needed already. to understand certain things and to begin to see that there are possibilities. Okay, one possibility is to begin to see how wild your mind is, how cascading it is like a waterfall, to not get discouraged by that because there is available a way of taming it. Now, what happens when we do, very briefly, when you put your attention on the breath and you're more and more able to do that, the content of the mind which assaults us, constant wanting something, or the anger and irritability, or the mind is dull, or the mind is agitated, or the mind is worrying, or the mind is doubting, doubting you, doubting us, doubting Buddhism, doubting meditation. As we more and more learn how to stick to the mind, we become secluded from all of that ranting and raving in the mind. So there comes a point where we settle in and there's a, a, little, a little patch of peace. Maybe it's only a few seconds to begin with. But with time, it's possible to drop into that peace and at, at varying depths of it, some of it extraordinarily deep, and even to stay there as long as you wish. There are people who can do that. It's not miraculous. It's just a skill that one can learn like any of the skills that you've already learned. All of us know lots of things. We learn them. This is another one that can be learned. Many people have learned these skills before us and continue to learn them right now. If you drop into a little bit of the... uh, In Thailand, some of the teachers use images like you with the shamatha practice in other words the steadiness of the mind can be like a bamboo house or a wooden house or a cement house essentially we build build a place in the heart where the heart can nourish itself because you leave the tumult of the world behind yeltsin everyone they're not in them they're gone they're still doing what they're doing Everyone's still doing what they're doing, only you've let it go. One way of looking at samadhi is the mind forgets everything, but is not asleep. It's quite awake, only it's forgotten everything else. It's not interested, because it's in something else that's extraordinarily fulfilling. Great peace and serenity and joy and happiness. Words. And it comes from just a simple breath from coming back to it gently time and time again, over and over and over again, over a period of time. When you get a cement house, that means uh, when you need it, you can drop into that house, into that place for nourishment, to refresh yourself, and then come back out. It's not meant to be, we're not telling you to stay in there forever. 
But you now are not, this is one example one of our teachers use, you're not like a homeless person, which is what we are with no, with no calm. When the mind is wild, we're like a homeless person with all our possessions, vulnerable to the rain and the snow and the sun. Meaning the assaults of our mind, the different moods we're in. When life, life treats us well, it's okay, but then when it doesn't, we can, we can become pretty, uh, enter into sorrow pretty easily. Well, what if it were possible, possible to uh, release ourselves from those preoccupation, preoccupations, at least temporarily, and to drop into a place of happiness, joy, and peace? That's what the shamatha practice enables us to do. Okay, now, take those mind states that we just, the different mind states of blaming someone else or blaming yourself or just avoiding it altogether, none of which are fruitful. Shamatha helps us care for the heart in the following way. I should say ways. In the nourishing process, it saves you from suffering. Just think about it. It's pretty clear. <clears throat> Let's say you're, you have a choice. You, you're getting entangled in some aspect of mind that's very painful. This is not vipassana. We'll come to that in a moment. You're getting entangled in something that's very painful in the mind. Your bananas are rotten. Whatever it is, you, whatever you're, it's about, you know, this is not about my grandfather, right? It's about us. Okay. If you can, it's like switching channels. If you can switch to channel breath, which as you cultivate it and develop it, it you drop into a, uh, you can come to rest. So you're not afflicted by what's happening to you. So in those moments that you stay there, you're not suffering or you're suffering less to begin with because maybe it's going on and you're still affected by it to some degree. But as it gets deeper, you can really drop out of that, disentangle yourself from that and enter into a, a very concentrated state. So not only have you now suffered, not suffered in those very real moments that make up our life, but also to some degree, those negative tendencies get a little weaker because we're not exercising them. Because we're not practicing blaming someone else. We're not practicing denial. We're not practicing blaming ourselves. We dr- it's a, another option. Okay. Another benefit that comes, which is very much has to do with, with uh, caring for the heart, and here's where the link with Vipassana comes in, when the heart is nourished and full from training in shamatha, uh, it enables, the, it it's, provides the, the, the mind with the, with the basis for real investigation, for real looking. And that's what Vipassana is about. Insight, seeing into. So the fullness of insight, insight or investigation, to some degree, has to do with the, uh, the condition of the mind. For example, 
if the samadhi is strong, the calmness is strong, and the steadiness is strong, there's less likelihood of investigation. Investigation is what brings wisdom, intelligence, non-intellectual intelligence. When it's strong, then the mind is able to look directly at whatever it is we're looking at. Perhaps in this case, I'm using the example of suffering. Let's say this feeling of humiliation that perhaps this young boy felt. When the mind is, has some samadhi to work with, then when attention is placed on the suffering, it can stay, it can, be, it can reach the point where it's, it can't be moved, it's immovable. Whereas the suffering rages like a tidal wave and the awareness doesn't budge. And it's not from a distance, we're not talking about detachment. Because in our practice, we become intimate with whatever is happening. This is a a misunderstanding, I think, that some people have. It's not looking at our suffering with binoculars from a mountain, but actually intimately experiencing the suffering, if that's what's there, and the joy as well. I happen to have picked suffering tonight. So the uh, full experience of what's happening is much more possible if the mind is steady. The awareness can be maintained in the midst of the experience. The intimacy means the subject-object split is dissolved. That's when it's really intimate. There's no you that's observing suffering because attention and the suffering are all one thing. It's a participant observation. You fully participate in that which you're observing. It's quite alive. It's not anemic. And it's uh, helped dramatically when the mind is still, when the mind becomes quiet so that it can be, uh, stay that way in the face of what's happening. And then, of course, when that happens, we can begin to see the nature of, say, fear or humiliation or loneliness or anything, really, of the breath because we can look at it carefully in a sustained way. And here, insight is not thinking. For those of you who are new, there are insights that come from uh, very beautiful intellectual work. Certainly, we learn valuable things from using our minds as we know it. But the kind of insight we're talking about here is something that uh, thought may prepare the ground for it. But really what it is, it comes out of the seeing. It's a natural outcome of the seeing. So what's required is a keen interest in whatever, in this case, uh, whatever you're thinking about right now, or if it's any of these examples, those examples. If it's able to do that, let's say if the mind, because in part because it's been nourished by some happiness, by some joy, by dropping into that, there's a place in us which is happy, already. It has nothing to do with whether uh, our boss gives us a raise or someone tells us we're beautiful or handsome or intelligent or dopey. Or It has nothing to do with medical reports or the weather. It's just there's no energy crisis there. It's just up, up to us to tap it. It's waiting. And each one of us has it. Even the people who came just for the weekend have it. 
but it's obscured by a lot of uh, habits and conditions. So as, let's say, we're, be, we're able to look at some of these states, we begin to see their nature. And one thing that you can see is that it, they arise and pass away. We're now moving into vipassana, into insight. We see that, let's say, the humiliation that any of the examples uh, point to. Each case of it, if the person could sit, if, let's say that person could sit, or it can be done without sitting. When the mind becomes clear, you can just do wherever it happens. You can pay attention to it. It doesn't require a formal, uh, this hall and cushions and anything. But certainly, uh, when you do it in the sitting, you have a very good chance of penetrating deeply into it. One of the things you see is that the humiliation arises and passes away. You're experiencing your suffering. You're acknowledging it. You're seeing that the suffering uh, comes and goes. Now, we all know that. But this is what I meant earlier. Wisdom's job is proclaiming these laws, like everything that arises passes away, and getting the heart to finally believe it. Because our intellect knows it, but our heart doesn't. So we're living as if everything is permanent. We know that we're going to die. Do we really? Of course, everyone knows they're going to die. If we all really knew we were going to die, could there be what's going on uh, in, in any place you look at it in the world? Bosnia? If we all shined the light of death on, on, what, on our lives, really knew it, so, nothing would stand up. So much pettiness and trivia and idiocy. It wouldn't stand a chance. It would just be too, too embarrassing. We don't know it. So as the mind becomes more of a clear mirror, it's another image. These are all images. Finally, you have to dig this out of your own practice. Maybe a hundred years from now, you'll say, oh, I, I understand. Okay, I see he wasn't just a jerk. Not only does it see that it arises and passes away, but it begins to see what we call anatta. It lacks self. It lacks selfhood. When there's no wisdom and there's humiliation, it's an affront to who? To some notion we have of ourselves, some image, some characterization. When you look more carefully, you begin to see that there's no one who's having the humiliation. That it's a state. Humiliation is here, that's for sure. But it really doesn't belong to anyone. It's just doing its humiliating thing. That's all it knows how to do, that poor mind state. It has no sense of humor. There's no love in it. Every time it comes, humiliation, humiliation, humiliation. That's all it knows how to do. And now it's here. And by confusion, we attach to it as being us. It's very convincing, clearly. This would be difficult for those who are very new to the path to understand. And if it makes no sense, don't worry about that. It's hard for all of us to understand. Again, first conceptually, but then really seeing it. You see that everything, everything arises and passes away and lacks self, is empty of self. And this is liberating. It may not sound it. It sounds like you're, everything's being taken away. Everything's being punctured. 
But there's something that comes out of that that is easily uh, worth it. Okay, so the, the vipassana is uh, taking the samadhi, the strength, the concentration that we've developed using the breath in an exclusive way and everything else too. The concentrated mind comes out of every time we're mindful uh, to what we're doing, for example, during your job. And if we have time, we'll go into that too. Every moment that you're awake is contributing to that kind of mind that can be steady and alert. So we spend a lot of time developing that because it's a, a, it provides us with a foundation to really uh, do some deep seeing. When the samadhi is not strong, what tends to happen is we all have the capacity for wisdom. This, this, this function is in all of us. But when there's not much samadhi there, not much strength, or it's, not, it's uh, not steady, what happens is we start to investigate something and it very rapidly deteriorates into speculation, theory, thinking, psychologizing, and so forth. That isn't what the kind of insight that's meant. There's the mind doesn't have the, the strength to look at something in its nakedness. The raw experience, raw life is what we're examining with a clear mirror. What is the relationship then between these two? Shamatha, which is development of serenity. Vipassana, the development of insight. Sometimes our practice is called serene reflection. The Chinese like that term. It's a good one. It means the mind develops serenity and then from that serene state it reflects itself. It reflects on itself. Reflection here not meaning thinking, but a kind of mirror-like, a keen interest in. And it begins to see into itself. And you can't investigate forever. That is, the samadhi strength kind of runs itself down. You run out of the peace and calm. You use it up. It deteriorates. And so you pull back. Then you go back to the breath. This is assuming now, let's say we have rather strong concentration. And then we do a lot of substantial investigation. And it enables us to let go of mainly our suffering. That's why we're doing it. You don't do that forever. And the time comes just like we need to go to sleep where it's enough. You know when it's enough. We go back to the breath again. Our home is one it's a kind of a home. Now, in the practice that we're doing, the breath is used for both. We use the breath exclusively to develop this calmness and serenity. And the breath also accompanies the investigating mind, the discerning mind. It accompanies it to nourish it, to help it uh, to minimize unnecessary thinking, to help keep it in the present moment. So at first the breath is featured, but then as the calm develops, the breath now joins and helps you look into the nature of the body. What is this body? We begin to see its nature and the nature of the mind. And so there's an interplay back and forth between uh, serenity and reflection, reflection and serenity. They need each other. They nourish each other. They work together in harmony.
there comes a point where at least sometimes these two words don't mean very much because they've fused finally. It's just a, a very alert mind that's looking into itself. To begin with, it's helpful. It's just a verbal dis- distinction though because while you're practicing serenity, haven't you learned something about yourself? I'm especially interested in the people who are new. Even though officially what we're doing is staying with the breathing, coming back to it, officially, shamatha practice. But don't you learn about yourself? Things come up. If nothing else, you learn how easily you get discouraged or uh, you see how having fantasies about what the next sitting is going to be like produces suffering because any expectation seems to. That's wisdom. Or you begin to see, and I hope this has happened to some of you already, you begin to see, oh, I, I get it. When I'm all preoccupied with the content of my mind, even though it's very convincing as being so interesting and worthwhile, it's often not so happy. I'm caught up in conflict and worrying and planning. It's tiring. It doesn't mean that all thought has to be banished. Hardly. But a lot of thoughts don't seem to lead to peace. And then we notice, oh, look at that. Isn't that interesting? When I stay with the breathing, sometimes it's kind of amazing, marvelous. I'm just sitting here doing nothing. Just I'm already breathing. It's kind of, why do they even call it a technique? I'm already doing it. And I'm just sitting and breathing and knowing it. And I just feel happy just to be a simple person sitting and breathing. And you begin to see that perhaps uh, we have a new option that we never realize, and even our values begin to change a bit. We start to see that maybe complexity is not... Maybe we need simple medicine for complex illness. The modern world is beyond description in terms of complexity. Maybe the time has come for the breath because it's so incredibly simple-minded. Are you kidding me? You mean we traveled all the way up here just to follow our breath? And some of you are going to do it for more than a week, nine, ten days, whatever. Some of you do it for months on end. Why do you do it? Well, you have, each one of us must find that out. But that too is wisdom. When you begin to see what causes suffering and what doesn't, and you more and more start guiding your life towards what is wise and beneficial. And that's again, wisdom pronouncing itself screaming from the rooftops for the heart to get it. Like sticking your hand in the fire, pulling it out. That's wisdom. We got that one. Probably the first time or the second time. It's the same principle. Um, In the final moments, let's go into daily life part. Let's say um, your yogi job Please, by extension, understand that what I'm saying applies to everything in daily life. So those of you who are are returning home tomorrow, uh, you can begin to do this practice wherever you are, whatever your work situation, family situation, school situation, etc. Unemployed, wherever. Hey, let's say you have a yogi job. There's always someone vacuuming. Sweeping, cutting vegetables, etc. 
Uh, do we harm ourselves there? Do we harm the heart there? I think so. For example, take a simple activity. Um, and I would encourage you tomorrow to begin to really see that your yogi job is not inferior to sitting in the hall. It's not superior either. It's just another piece of your life. So what we're learning is to have full respect for every aspect of our life from moment to moment. Whatever we encounter, that's our life right then and there. We're living out our life moment by moment, breath moment by breath moment. Okay, once let's say somebody is vacuuming, but they're divided. They're separated from the vacuuming. Because they'd rather be doing something else. You know, those stickers, I'd rather be golfing or fishing or everyone would rather be somewhere else. Well, in that moment, that's probably not such a happy state. Or you feel degraded. I'm chairman of the board and here they've got me vacuuming. (laughs) Or you're manually inept. You know, I should be doing something, you know, adding up figures or punching a, you know, a computer. So one commercial where the person just punches at a computer. Okay, I know you, it's okay. In that moment, maybe it's a subtle kind of suffering. It's a subtle way in which we harm ourselves. Maybe we think we're, you know, this vacuuming is not for me. It's, uh, I'll do it. You have to do it. I don't want to stick out. I don't want to cause trouble. Uh, I'll do what they say. Uh, but I'm not really very interested in this. We kind of distance ourselves from it, either intentionally or unawares. But what that is, is the Chinese called it killing life. They had two phrases, giving life to life and killing life. And it's a subtle meaning of, of a violation of the precept of not to kill. It's not a being that you're killing. What you're killing is the quality of your own life when you're divided, when you're fragmented, when you're alienated. So if you're vacuuming but thinking about being in a a health spa somewhere, at that moment you're killing life. And at that moment the heart is a little bit damaged. That may sound far-fetched, but later on perhaps if you keep uh, doing this practice when you see the state that the heart can be when the, when the heart is undivided, when it's clear and there's, the conflict falls away and the ambivalence falls away and it's just happy to just be. It's not trying to become anyone or get anywhere. None of that. Even for just a little bit. You see what it is you've been missing out on, what we've all been missing out on because of our incessant divisiveness. So what it, when you give life to life, That's when we're not divided, when we're not separate from what we're doing. So that if you're vacuuming, how do you become one with vacuuming? It's not that it's not muscular. It's not that it takes an extraordinary effort of will to try to become one with vacuuming. I don't know, hold the machine tighter or it's not that at all. It's that as you just vacuum, you know, do what it takes to vacuum and notice when the mind is divided. Notice that your vacuum in the mind is somewhere else. And when you see it, just as with the breath practice, oh, and this come back to vacuuming. Try it. Try it tomorrow and every day of the retreat, and we'll talk about it as the retreat unfolds. So, give life to life or kill life. Uh, It's in everything we do. Some of it's very, very subtle. 
uh, as you can see, so much of it has to do with what we keep harping on over and over and over again about being in fully in the present moment. Let me finish with the Buddha. One of the most wonderful utterances of the Buddha. I've reflected on this one many, many times. I continue to be amazed at how much it says. One time there was a Brahmin who saw 500 yogis, practitioners, uh, and there was, so there was a whole bunch of, uh, of monks who were practicing. And they all looked very serene and happy, very peaceful, and they just glowed. And so the Brahmin asked the Buddha, my goodness, how are they, what is it about these people? Why are they all so serene and, and happy? Why do they glow like that? I feel so good being around them, even though there are so many of them. And the Buddha answered him, said, They do not lament the past, nor crave for things in the future, but maintain themselves on, what is, on whatever comes. Therefore, they are serene. If I could read that one more time. They do not lament the past, nor crave for things in the future, but maintain themselves. You could put nourish themselves, maintain themselves on whatever comes. Therefore, they are serene. Could we have a moment's silence, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.